I'd like you to open to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to go back to verse 18 so we can understand the context of where we're going next. The topic that Peter is dealing with is slavery, which was common in the first century, and it was related to finances, uh, individuals or groups or regions were often put into slavery uh, as a means of um, somebody recovering lost revenue. And uh, there was a lot of slaves in the first century Roman Empire. And because of that, there were many Christians among those slaves. And the New Testament makes no bones about it. Slaves were to continue living a godly life in that state of slavery. Now, Paul says, if you can get your freedom, fantastic. But your big thing is, no matter what, you live the Christian lifestyle. And so here is Peter, who no doubt has read what Paul has written on this very topic, uh, repeating the same sort of instruction. He says, servants or slaves, be subject or submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So the action of a Christian servant, and you can make the application to an employee, it's not a perfect parallel, but it is close enough that it works. The responsibility of a Christian subordinate has nothing to do with the actions and attitude of their supervisor, of their master. Their responsibility is to always do the right thing. And so he says, you need to show respect to your master, to your employer, not just when they're good and gentle to you, you know, fair-minded and fair-handed, but even when they are unfair and mean and spiteful. And so this helps us as Christians understand how we react to the people around us, uh, even the ones that aren't our bosses. We need to be respectful and always, re always represent Jesus Christ. And uh, Peter says, uh, for this sort of action is a gracious thing. He uses that word for grace, which has the idea of unmerited favor. So even though they don't deserve, and I'm putting that in air quotes here, uh, this type of treatment uh, from you based on what they've been doing, you do it anyway because that should help them come into some sort of understanding of God and his desire to fix their issues. So this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, so it's always tied in to our understanding of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So we're getting mistreated in our job and we keep on doing the job well. We keep doing it the right way. We keep trying to benefit our supervisor and our employer because that's what we're supposed to do. Whatever your hands 
find to do, do it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it to the glory of God. Uh, when we work, we work for God. Uh, so if we you know, are getting hassled and we hang in there and do the right thing, that's, that's a mercy to those people. Uh, for what credit is it uh, if you, uh, excuse me, um, verse number 20 says, for what credit is it if when you is sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Uh, so it was common practice that if a uh, slave was misbehaving, uh, they could be stricken with uh, corporal punishment. That is a, a spanking, if you will, uh, even as an adult. Uh, so what good does it do, you know, if you bear up under that spanking when in fact you deserved it because you weren't behaving right? But on the other hand, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So if you do the right thing and you get a spanking for it, uh, then that's glory to God. Uh, because you're just hanging in there doing the right thing. Now, what might you do that would get you a spanking? Well, maybe the slaveholder told you to lie about stuff or to steal things from other uh, households that you were going into on his business or, or whatever it was, something illegitimate. And he said, I can't do that, sir. That would be wrong for me to do in God's presence. And so then you get punished for it. Uh, Peter says, if you bear up under that, that is gracious in the sight of God. Uh, verse 21, for to this you have been called, that is, to do the right thing regardless. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So here we have the example of Jesus in this very situation. Verse 22, he committed no sin. We know that. That's a, that's a, a absolute of our Christian faith, uh, that he was tempted in all ways like unto ourselves, yet he never sinned. He never did the wrong thing. So he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he never lied about anything or deceived people. When he was reviled... That is, when he was talked down about, lied about, slandered, he did not revile in return. So he did not reciprocate by lying back at the other person, saying nasty things back at the other person. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So he did not, even though he's the God of the universe, threaten to kill that other person, destroy that other person. Uh, just because they were upset about the way, or that he was upset about the way he was being treated. Uh, but instead, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's a reference to God the Father. Jesus the Son submitted himself to all of the things that we read about in the Gospels, particularly in that last few hours before he went to the cross. He submitted to all of that, trusting that God would take care of things. And that is where we need to be as well. 
verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now, one of the things that you may have noticed is that the apostles writing in the New Testament often refer to the cross as a tree. And the reason they do that is because in the Old Testament, there was a prophecy that uh, it's actually more of a statement of reality that those who were executed for their crimes would be, have their dead bodies displayed on a tree and then they would be buried uh, before the sun went down. And so this was a, it was part of the process of warning others, don't engage in wrong behavior or you could end up hanging on a tree dead just like this. And so in the New Testament, Paul points out that God made him, Jesus, a curse for us because the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who has been hung upon a tree. So that's the tie-in. And so here is Peter saying, Jesus, he took our sins into his body and then he hung on the tree as a curse for us, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the whole goal was that we would die with him in our old sinful self, and then when he is resurrected, we too are resurrected into a brand new life. We've been born again. And so Peter wants us to see that in this life we're living, we're new creatures. We're not the old sinful self. So when you get mistreated, you don't act like you used to act. You act like Jesus acts. Uh, that's the rule. Uh, in fact, I love the, uh, the Galatians 2.20 passage. I think it fits really well right here. In fact, Peter may have already read it just recently by the time he wrote down these words. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. So our Christian lifestyle is not reactive to what other people are doing to us, but rather it is responsive to what Jesus did for us. And that needs to uh, be very, very much applied uh, to and held on to in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, there's a little line here at the end of that verse, by his wounds you have been healed. That's a, an allusion or a reference back to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage about Jesus. So everything that happened to him made us better, fixed our sin problem. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So all of us like sheep have gone astray, but Jesus came as the good shepherd and gathered us in. 
and uh, we are now his sheep, uh, the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, and we ought to act like it in everything we do, including in our employment or in the first century in our slavery status. Now, another area uh, that this impacts upon is our marriages. Uh, Now, he keeps uh, focusing on the submission aspect of our lifestyles, like submission to the government, submission to the master. Remember, submission is all about finding your place in the rank, finding your place in the order of society. And so the next thing that he goes to is marriage, and he focuses on the submission uh, aspect for the ladies. And he has something very specific in mind. Verse 1 of chapter 3, likewise, wives, be subject or be submissive to your own husbands. And remember, this is the whole idea that uh, each couple is a team. Uh, But because teams sometimes come to decision points that they don't agree on. There has to be a clear understanding as to who the team leader is. Now, that was established by God in Genesis chapter 3 with the whole Adam and Eve story. Uh, Part of it is that Eve was the one that got sucked into the lie of Satan first. Uh, Adam joined in the disobedience with her, so he's just as culpable. Uh, But there's also this idea that uh, that first husband, Adam, when confronted with his sin, tried to excuse himself by throwing his wife under the bus, trying to say it was her fault, not his. And it seems as if God said, fine, this is the way it's going to be from now on. In each marriage partnership, the husband will be the team leader. Everything that happens, he's responsible for. So all you husbands out there, you hear me. I I tell you this every single time we come to this topic. Don't get too full of yourself saying, well, God made me the boss in the marriage. No, he made you the team leader and it works this way. If you and your wife don't agree on something and you go your way and it blows up in your face, that'll be your fault. You will answer to God for that. If you decide, well, Let's go my wife's way. And it blows up. That's still on you, bud. Because you're the team leader. And so husbands, you need to understand the responsibility of representing God in that team leadership. But as for the ladies, this is what uh, the Holy Spirit says through Peter. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word. So now we're thinking about a mixed marriage here, uh, where the wife came to faith in Jesus Christ, apparently, and the husband didn't. He didn't believe the word. So Peter says, even in those circumstances, you need to be submissive to your team leader husband, so that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So the idea is 
you wives are setting an example for your husbands. Let them see Jesus in you, in how you respond to their team leadership. And verse 2 continues that thought, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, when they see that you are all about doing the right thing, no matter what. Now then, Peter kind of takes a little sidestep. He'll get back to that other topic in a moment. He says, do not let your adorning be external. And I really think the thrust of the passage here uh, demands we understand the word merely is implied. Uh, this, This passage and the passage where Paul talks on this topic are not saying that ladies can't wear makeup or can't braid their hair, can't wear jewelry or anything like that, okay? It's simply saying, ladies, don't get sidetracked into thinking that your beauty is outward defined. So don't let your adorning be merely external. You know, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. So don't let yourself get sucked into this idea that you are defined by how you look. It's great. If you love looking good, that's fine. But don't get sucked into that being the centerpiece of how you um, value your life. Because instead, this is what you're supposed to focus on. Verse 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. So the thing that people do not see except by example. Now, the heart is where the Jewish mindset thinks you make your choices. So the core of your being, let that be what you focus your beauty upon. Uh, With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, in God's sight, very precious. And so this, again, is in the aspect of the partnership between husbands and wives, uh, that it is the idea that the wife can make a lot of difference in how they respond to their husband's leadership. Uh, Not nagging, not berating, not criticizing, but rather being supportive and encouraging and trying to make it work, okay? Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you can go back to the book of Genesis, I think chapter 18 somewhere, um, she refers to Abraham, her husband, as my Lord. So that's what he has in mind, is the verbiage of the inspired word of God. Uh, and uh, this was a, this is a, an illustration of how she respected him as her partner in life. Now, do not give into the temptation 
of looking at certain episodes in the relationship between Abraham and Sarah and making that um, the the way you perceive the relationship. Because there was a couple of times where she did not call him Lord and did not show him respect. She was rather uh, frustrated by the situation of the moment and let it come out. And so I hope all of us understand, We none of us want to be defined by one of the times when we failed in the way we acted, right? None of us. We want the bigger picture to be known. And so in the bigger picture of the relationship between Abraham and Sarah, it was one of mutual respect and support and love. It was those two against the world. And so... Uh, Peter says, that's, that's the model you ladies should be following, even if your husband is not on board with your faith. Now, this could be flipped the other gender, you understand, that uh, the husbands, if they have an unbelieving wife, should be treating them with love and respect and value, even as if Jesus was valuing them through the marriage, uh, because the goal is to eventually convince them, believe with me in the faith. So that's the goal. Uh, so verse number six goes on to remind the ladies here, you are her children. You know, you are her offspring. Now that was literal for some of the people. All the Jewish people uh, descended from Sarah. Uh, so some of them were literal descendants of her. But even for the Gentiles, they are her spiritual descendants. So you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So be like Sarah and have that loving submissive partner relationship with your husbands, just like her, uh, and uh, do it in honor to God. And maybe that'll make a difference uh, in your unbelieving husband's life. Because the goal always is, in all of our interactions, uh, whether you're talking about the cashier at the store or somebody that you rear-ended at an intersection and you're having a conversation with them about what to do next, in every interaction, somewhere in the back of her mind, there ought to be this realization, I'm representing Jesus Christ to this person. What if this person needs the gospel? How can I make sure that I, as a Christian, represent Jesus properly to them? So that's, that's what Peter is addressing here. In every circumstance, how can you best live as a representative of God? And I hope all of us will take that to heart. Now, verse 7, um, Peter gets around to talking about the husbands. Husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Now, ladies, don't get bent out of shape here, okay? That, that was not intended as an insult. In fact, I think we can understand it uh, in our own modern context a little bit 
differently, uh, different wording perhaps. Um, and that is not weaker in the sense of you're just less valuable, but rather more, I suppose the word delicate might be used, but more uh, to be valued. Um, I like to use this illustration. And I'm not a fisherman, but I use this fishing illustration. Uh, gentlemen, your wife is to be treated like a Ming Dynasty vase that uh, is cherished at the museum, not like your old fishing thermos that you throw into the bottom of the boat. Um, early in our marriage, Deb would say to me from time to time when I've been a little bit too physically rough with her in the sense of, you know, slapping her on the arm or something like that. that not so rough. See, because we guys, especially younger guys, we're constantly punching each other in the shoulder or slapping each other on the back or the bottom. And, uh, you know, it's it's the testosterone thing going on there, the, the muscle mass uh, uh, highlight thing. Um, but that's not how the wife ought to be treated, right? And so that's, that's why I always think about Deb saying, not so rough. That's what it's talking about here. Being kind and considerate to the ladies in our lives, and especially that one great lady in our life that is our beloved, our wife. And the reminder here is, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Our wives are our partners. They are our partners in a marriage. They are partners in our life. They are partners in our faith if we are blessed. And because of that, they become partners in eternity. You know, Deb and I have often uh, talked about this idea that, you know, we're looking forward to hanging out together into eternity uh, because we have both been saved and sanctified by the blood of Christ. And so we ought to treat each other like we get to spend eternity in each other's presence with joy and happiness. And Peter throws this last little thing out that should not be ignored. If we do not treat our wives and our husbands fairly and appropriately, that's going to screw up our relationship with God. If we are not treating our life partner well, then we have an issue with anything that we talk to God about because we need to repent of that before we can be serious in moving forward with anything else that we want to talk to God about. So husbands and wives, hear the word of the Lord and do it.